reading this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And then our New Testament reading, there's actually going to be two. The first is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, which is our sermon text. But then I also want us to turn to one verse in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And that will end our our scripture readings uh, for this morning. But first of all, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, our Old Testament passage. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lean them. The cow will be, the cow and bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, which was our text last time I was here as well. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then one verse from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. One verse parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found and covered up, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your word, for your word read, for your word heard. This is a blessing. It is a means of grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illumines this word to our hearts and minds and we pray that he is doing that work even as the word read is resonating in our ears. And now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. You have commanded that your gospel be preached, that the word of God be proclaimed and in the assembly in our worship, and we worship you by the constable hearing of the word of God. Father, bless our worship in the preaching and the hearing of your word by granting strength, by granting the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit to your servant and the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time that I was here, we had the same text, that is Philippians 3, 1 to 11. But I told you then, the text is far too rich to just spend one sermon there. So I'm spending two sermons. In the text, in the sermon last time, we focused our attention on the front end of the text. But I wanted to read the whole pericope, that is the whole thought that we have so that the latter part would give context to the former part in the text. And this morning we're going to flip that and we're going to look at the latter part of the text in light of the former part of this text. I would remind you that Paul begins this section with an exhortation. That exhortation is, is that we are to rejoice. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice and the Lord, and I made a comment, I don't know if it resonated with any of you, but, but I find it puzzling that Paul would command people to rejoice. I wouldn't find it puzzling if he were to command us to meditate upon those things which cause us to rejoice, but it seems to me like you're either joyful or you're not, <laughs> and, and to command you to be joyful just seems to me to strike me. A, a bit strange, but I think he's using shorthand here. I think he's talking about we need to contemplate on who we are in Christ Jesus. When we contemplate upon who we are in Christ Jesus, then what we have is joy. And then last time we also focused on the character of this joy. This is not the joy of mirth. It's more than just happiness. 
It's not a joy that's based upon our current circumstances. But we find the struggles that we have in life that can rob us sometimes of our happiness. But rather a deep resident joy that cannot be wrested from you. Though the world and the devil will do everything they can to try to take it from you. That kind of joy. And I tried to illustrate that a bit by taking you to the book that John Piper wrote many years ago called Desiring God. And if you recall, he takes that Westminster First Catechism question, <clears throat> what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And he puts a little twist on it, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And then his greatest influence, Jonathan Edwards was one and C.S. Lewis was the other. But we focused on Lewis's definition of joy, which you can't really define. There's not a definition. It's a word used to describe that sense of deep commitment to God, what it is that God does in us in that commitment, that he can think of no other way to describe it but to use the biblical word joy to do so. Something resonant, something that is deep-seated within us. And that's even reflected in his autobiography, uh, surprised by joy. And then also I pointed out as well a later memoir that he wrote um, following the death of his wife where he almost lost his joy. He almost lost his faith as he saw her suffer with cancer and die. But he didn't. God preserved him. And, and what is there in, in a C.S. Lewis with all of the problems that Lewis sometimes had in his theology. But what was there is similar, I think, to what Paul is referring to here in the text and what he's calling us to do in terms of joy. Well, that was last time's sermon in five minutes. I want to focus on the latter part of the text. And here, what Paul does as he's going through the text is he, he goes into autobiography. He tells something about himself, and, and he does it by saying people want to rob you. They want to rob you of your joy by legalism or by works righteousness. And he calls those that would impose that kind of thought upon you even dogs and mutilators of the flesh and evildoers because he knows how legalism, a legal spirit, will choke out any real joy in any real true Christian religion. Now, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's where your joy comes from. And so Paul comes down hard there. But then he does something quite interesting. Those Jews who would come with their pedigree with their list of who they are, oftentimes by birth, Paul says, don't put any confidence in that. There's pretty confidence in the flesh. But if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, let me show you my pedigree. Look at who I am. Look at who I was in terms of that pedigree. Let's compare. That's what Paul is saying. And so we see this as he goes through this. He says, I have more. I have a, a better pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law required. 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace his genealogy back to Benjamin himself. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself, as to the law of Pharisee. Now we hear that, and that sounds strange to our ears, because we have a negative connotation of the word Pharisee, and rightfully so. If Jesus calls them whitewashed sepulchers, then we probably should have a, a negative connotation when we hear the word Pharisee. But the people in that day didn't have that connotation. When they heard Pharisee, they heard, this is the one that's most zealous to keep the law of God. These are the godliest people in Israel. That was their thought. Jesus simply exposes them as whitewashed sepulchers because they're clean on the outside. In fact, so clean, you can't find any fault with them on the outside. But inside is what's inside a tomb. It's dead. It stinks unto death. Jesus exposes that. But when people heard the word Pharisee, they thought, these are the most fastidious in keeping the law of God. And Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, we might think, well, how is that strong on his list as a pedigree? Well, if you put yourself in the enemy camp, the Jews that are persecuting the Christians, then you can quite see it. Here's one who was so committed to what he believed to be orthodoxy and wanted to step out what he believed to be heresy was going and rounding up Christians, those who followed this Christ, and throwing them into prison. He was zealous. He put feet to his convictions. He's laying up his list of what he is according to the flesh, and he's saying, compare it. Mine's better than yours. And then finally he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a big, that's a mouthful to say blameless. That is, Paul was beyond reproach as a Pharisee. He was so zealous to outwardly keep the law of God, even though he was wrong about all of it. In terms of that outward keeping of the law, Paul was blameless. Of course, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changed. But look at what we see as we see this is autobiographical here. He's putting his pedigree up against others. He's telling us who he was before he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at what he says has happened now. But whatever gain I had, whatever I had, whatever merit I had, whatever pedigree I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain, gain Christ. And th- think about what he's saying there. You see, Paul was not only the things that he's listed before. Paul was a man of prestige. Paul was a man of influence. Paul was a man of means. The other apostles, most of them drew salaries from the churches where they were serving. Paul could have required one, but he didn't. He was a tent maker, and evidently a very good one at that. Able to make tents. He had wealth. He had power. He had prestige. Where is he now when he's writing this epistle? 
he's in jail. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a palace guard. He's awaiting trial before Nero. The only way he can afford to pay the rent in the house where he is incarcerated is because the Philippians, to whom he's writing this letter, took up a big offering and sent it with Epaphroditus in order to meet his needs. Here Paul is, by human standards, holding up his list of who he was, had everything, and now he has nothing by those standards. And guess what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Why? Because he has Christ. You see? In fact, he considers all those things he had before. Take that whole pedigree. I mean, what's, what, what good is that going to do before Nero anyway? It's a piece of Jewish paper. You say, it's nothing. It's nothing. But even when he had all of that, even when he put so much stock in who he was as a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, even when he put so much stock in those things, even his place of prestige and power and influence within the Jewish community in trying to stamp out this new sect called Christianity. He calls it rubbish. That's a cleaned up translation. The word is stronger than rubbish. But we're in polite company, we're going to call it rubbish. (laughs) All of these things to me, are as nothing. This is the genius of the epistle as we read it. This is what we learn from this epistle. This is what we learn by the example of one who is walking with Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who says, imitate me as I have imitated Christ. This is what it looks like when Christ is being formed in the life of an individual. There's only one thing that matters to him, and that is knowing Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. And what pleases Christ? The advance of the kingdom. Remember we saw in chapter 1? Paul's in prison. This is a demonic attempt to silence the apostle to the Gentiles. Everywhere he goes, he preaches the gospel. Yeah, he may get stoned. He may get thrown in jail. Those kinds of things are happening to him. But guess what? Churches are being planted. Everywhere he goes, churches are being planted. The gospel is spreading. Satan tries to stamp it out. How? If I can get Paul in prison. But in chapter 1, Paul is almost laughing at the devil. Because what's happened? Yeah, he's in prison, all right, but he's under house arrest. He can have unlimited visitors. People are coming in. You've heard me say this before. They're coming in. He's preaching the gospel. People are hearing the gospel. They're being converted. I think it's quite probable that Onesimus was one of those that was converted. (laughs) There, when Paul was preaching, when Paul was in prison. People are converted. He's chained to the palace guard. They cannot escape. Isn't that crazy? He's chained to them so he can't escape. They're chained to him so they can't escape. they got to hear the gospel. 
And evidently some of them are being converted. The gospel is spread even to Caesar's own household. And not only that, people are seeing his boldness in prison. They're saying, well, if he can preach in prison, we who are free can preach in the streets. And the gospel is spreading through the capital city of Rome. And Paul is almost giddy with elation of these circumstances that have befallen him. Is that the way you see your circumstances and struggles and difficulties that you face? You ask the question, how does this advance my sanctification? How does this advance the gospel? See, this is one, he, and Paul is an example to us in this, of what it looks like, what mature Christianity looks like. He's lost all things, but it doesn't matter because he has what matters, and that's Jesus Christ himself. I want to turn to that little parable. One verse parable, Matthew 13. Let me tell you something about parables. Be careful with a lot of people think, well, the parables, that's the easiest thing to understand. They're just illustrative stories. No, they're not. Parables are quite complicated to interpret. In fact, so much so that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, got tired of it. They were frustrated. He says, why do you speak to this people in parables? They don't know what in the world you're talking about. Why don't you speak to them in plain speech? And what's Jesus' response? If I speak to them in, in plain speech, then they will repent and be healed. So I speak to them in parables so they won't. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. The parables are profound but oftentimes must be interpreted by Jesus for us to understand what it is that he's saying. And that's what he would do. He would teach the parable, then he would take his disciples aside, and he would explain the parable to them. And we read the explanation and say, oh, that makes sense. Now, we don't oftentimes think of that aspect of Jesus' teaching in parables, and yet that's what he said, why he teaches in parables. So be careful with parables. Another thing, don't press every detail of a parable. Are you going to be led astray? What's the main point of the parable? It's illustrating some important truth. Press it too far, then you will go astray. And this parable is a parable that is like that. Listen to it. Very, very brief. One verse the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, let's see if I got my grammar right. That's a simile, right? It's not a metaphor. Do y'all remember the difference between a simile and a metaphor? The younger guys say, yeah, yeah, you got it right. Simile uses like or as. A metaphor doesn't use like or as. Is that correct? You older people are saying, I used to know something like that, but I don't know that I can remember that <coughs> anymore. Yeah, this is a simile. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Which means the kingdom of heaven is not a treasure hidden in a field. And there are ways in which the kingdom of heaven is not like a treasure hidden in a field. But there is a way in which the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Let's continue to read. Which a man found and covered up. 
He found his treasure in this field, and he hides it. He covers it up. And then in his joy, now remember the overriding theme of Philippians is what? Joy? Have we not seen that? Even in last time's sermon? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That is, he liquidates everything in order to get the price to buy the field. Does he want the field? No, he could care less about the field in order to secure the treasure. Now, you see why you can't apply this in every way. In, in one sense, the man is honest in that he buys the field. He doesn't just take the treasure. In another way, he's not honest because he doesn't tell the owner of the field about the treasure. No, that's not the point that Jesus is making here about how to do business. That's not the point of this, of this parable. The point of this parable is about the worth and the value of the kingdom of heaven. That's what this parable is about. The worth and value of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure that when a man sees it, when he finds it, he hides it, and he sells everything that he has in order to have in his possession that treasure because the joy that that treasure will bring to him. Again, you can't press it. Why? Because material things won't give you joy like that. It's a false promise. We know that. The point is, what is the value of the kingdom of heaven? It's more important to the man than anything else in the world. We need to examine our own lives in light of this. What's most important to you? Is it your family? We're Presbyterians. We put a whole lot of stock in families, covenant families, children, the whole thing. They're a blessing, are they not? They can be an idol. You know what Jesus said about your, your wife and your children? He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to hate them. Your father and your mother, you've got to hate them. He's speaking in hyperbolic language. We know that. Jesus wants you to love your mother and your father and love your wife and your children. We know that. He's talking about comparative worth in terms of your heart. Is Jesus worth more than anything else? So that you would sacrifice everything in order to have Jesus. Now the good news is, is he's not going to ask you to sacrifice everything in order to have Jesus. That's another thing this parable is not teaching is, if you want to know Jesus, sell everything you have, take a vow of poverty, move into a monastery. No, that's pressing it too far. It's talking about the worth and the value. Where is your family? The esteem of your family, the love of your family in your life, your devotion to your family, in comparison to your love and your devotion to Christ Jesus? Or what about your vocation, your work? That can become an idol. It's a blessing of God that it can become an idol. Or your recreations. Your possessions, if you press the parable too far. This treasure. I want this treasure. Reminds you of Gollum, doesn't it? I want this treasure. My treasure, you say. No, my precious, what he said. My precious. Desired more than anything else. Not material things. Not even good things. And material things are not bad in and of themselves. They're blessings from God, but can easily become idols. 
What is most important to you? Jesus is saying it better be my kingdom. Now, Paul advances on Jesus' parable. What's the advance? What's the advance? What's the movement forward as we consider what Paul says here? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that treasure hidden in the field. Paul says it's more than the kingdom. It's the king himself. The king is your treasure. And who's that king? The king is Jesus Christ. Never, never, never let this dichotomy come into your mind and in your heart between the king and between all the benefits the king brings to you. We've talked about Ordo Salutis. We've talked about the blessings of salvation. Calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, perseverance, glorification, union with Christ. These are the blessings. These are the blessings that we call the ordo salutis, or the blessings of salvation that are ours. You don't just get the blessings. You get the benefactor himself, and the blessings are found in him. You get Christ Jesus. You don't just get the kingdom. You get the king. You're in union with the king. You're in union with Christ Jesus, and therefore he is your joy. One commentator on Philippians subtitles his commentator, commentary, Jesus, our joy. Not just this is about joy. No, it's about Jesus is our joy. And that's right here in the midst of this text. Bringing last time's sermon and this time's sermon together in the same text. Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your greatest desire? Would you give up all in order to have Jesus, even though he's not going to ask you to do so? Unless you're Job. Now that's an enigma. But then he gives him back. He may ask you to give up significant things for his sake. Paul says, I count all that rubbish that I might know Christ Jesus himself. This is profoundly powerful, brothers and sisters in Christ. Is Jesus your joy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word, we thank you for your servant, a sinner just like us, and the Apostle Paul. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you found your joy in us. You took the wrath of the Father in our place in order to obtain us. 
and that Paul, your servant, followed your example. Now we follow his and yours. Now, Lord, stir our hearts to long for you. That everything else would grow dim by comparison. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.